0: I invite you to grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you were here last week, um, well, it's on page 706 in my Bible, by the way. Um, If you were here last week, you know that um, Ecclesiastes is a strange book. um, And you also know that uh, there are really two voices in the book. There is the teacher who... uh, who's mostly what we think about when we think about Ecclesiastes. So you hear his stuff from chapter 1 through chapter 12. But actually the book is introduced and concluded by some thoughts of this guy that we've been referring to as the author. Um, and the author provides a kind of commentary on the teacher. So he's the one who introduces us to the teacher and then sort of gives some, some concluding thoughts. And today we're going to look at the concluding thoughts that the uh, author has about the teacher. Does that make sense? Okay. So, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and we begin with verse 9. So the the teacher has just concluded another section of uh, teaching, and then this is what the author says. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched t- to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. their collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of every human being. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. So when I was a freshman in high school, my English teacher... Uh, posed a question to my class, and he asked us uh, how many of us could name all four of our grandparents' their first name. And as I recall, the class did pretty well on that one. But then the teacher asked, "Well, how many of you can name the first name of your great grandparents?" And and the results on that one were a lot more uneven. Um, as I recall, there was maybe like one or two kids in the whole class who could name more than like two of the first names of their great grandparents, and and one of them was like this John Williams IV guy, which I feel like <laughs> is cheating, really. So, um, but the teacher pointed out the teacher pointed out that this really, uh, it's really quite something that that none of us could name even half of our great-grandparents, because he pointed out that there's probably nobody else in the world our age, and and certainly younger, uh, who would be more likely to know the names of those people than us, right? We're we're direct descendants, right? We're flesh and blood. It's really not that far removed, and yet we did not even know their first names. We didn't even know their first names. And so my teacher pointed out that if this is true, it would seem to be only a matter of time, and probably not that much time, before our great-grandparents would be completely forgotten from the face of the earth. And Mr. Van Houten sort of let that sink in for a minute, before he pointed out that if that can happen to our great-grandparents... What makes us think that won't happen to us? And that's when Mr. Van Houten told a room full of 15-year-olds that it will probably not take very long in the scheme of things before each of us is completely forgotten from the face of the earth. Now, I don't know if my teacher knew this, but that is a very Ecclesiastes kind of lesson, okay? (laughs) The teacher in Ecclesiastes loves the provocative comment. He loves to to ask these provocative questions. We went through some of his greatest hits last week, like, uh, we're all going to die, and uh, we'll all be forgotten. That's one of his favorites to bring up. And and all the things that we pour ourselves into that we're so passionate about in this life will either be forgotten or replaced, probably before we are even forgotten. Ecclesiastes is not a very sunny book. But as, as uncomfortable as the book is, remember how it's supposed to function. Remember last week we looked at verse 11 of chapter 12, right? That, that Ecclesiastes, I brought my goad, my hockey stick goad. Um, Ecclesiastes, the, these, these, these provocative questions are meant to be a goad. Like, like a, a sharp stick in the side of a sheep or a goat that is meant to to push them in the right direction, right? And remember, it is precisely the unpleasantness that makes a goad work, right? We talked about how you couldn't use a swimming noodle, right? A goad is not meant to feel good, right? But it is only because it does not feel good that a goad can move us in the right direction. Remember that from last week, right? Because if you think about it, I mean our our 15-year-olds in this church are exempted, but most 15-year-olds are not in the habit of thinking deeply about the meaning of life and existence. Right? I mean, when I when I was 15, I was probably thinking most deeply about like Mountain Dew and Nintendo 64. Like that's that's what I was thinking deeply about. Right? 15-year-olds do not often like contemplate the the, the deep mysteries of existence. But with the right goad, Mr. Van Houten, right, he had at least me wondering, what what does make a life worth living? And so throughout Ecclesiastes, the teacher takes a look at all these candidates for what might make a life worth living. He looks at wisdom, maybe it's status, maybe success, maybe wealth. Maybe just live for pleasure. Maybe it's work or maybe it's relationships, right? And chapter after chapter, he goes through this list. And then each time, he comes to the same withering conclusion. Meaningless. Meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And he's trying to push us, right? And last week, we said that he's he's pushing us to, to, to think about what is eternal, right? He's pushing us to heaven, but the process, the questions do not feel good. I even said last week that Ecclesiastes is not a lot of people's favorite book of the Bible. Um, But then last Sunday after the service, after I'd said that, I had what I'm sure was a record number of people correct my sermon. Um, All these people came up to me and they said, you know, actually, I, I really like the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, so apparently we've got a bunch of closet nihilists in the church, <laughs> or I don't, maybe you're hedonists, I'm not sure, one of the two. Um, and so I've been thinking this week, I've been thinking about all those comments last week, and like, what is it that appeals to people about Ecclesiastes? And some of you had a chance to share a little bit about that. And, and it seems to me that, like, I think what it is, is that the teacher in Ecclesiastes Does something that I think a lot of us find just kind of refreshing. Right? So in Proverbs, if you remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at Proverbs. In Proverbs, life is very orderly and predictable. Like good things are going to happen to good people and and bad things are going to happen to bad people. Right? The worldview of Proverbs is pretty straightforward. It's it's pretty cut and dried. But the teacher in Ecclesiastes offers more nuance. Right? He doesn't look at all like the neat and tidy things in the world. He looks at all the ways that Proverbs doesn't quite add up. He, he looks at all the disorder in the world. He looks at all the inconsistencies. And then the teacher just names those for like 12 chapters. See, I think sometimes it seems like at church, we've got to, like, we've got to race to a happy ending. That that we've all got to like put on this show and pretend like even though like we look around and and we can see that this world is harsh. And and we can see that this world is, sometimes it is arbitrary and it is confusing and it is depressing. Like even though we see that at church sometimes we feel like, even though we see that like from, from Monday to Saturday, we feel like on Sunday we're supposed to pretend like we didn't notice. Like everything is just fine. And so I think for a lot of you, the fact that Ecclesiastes made it into the Bible, that like no editor along the way like cut it out, but that it stayed in there, for you that is like this kind of validation. It's like this affirmation that you're not a crazy person, right? That maybe there is room, even in the church, for like hard questions or, or incomplete answers or even for a little like uncertainty. The author says that the teacher, no matter how hard his words are to hear, the author says that the teacher is wise, that that the teacher is on to something. And I think for those of us who sometimes feel like the point of Christianity is that we are supposed to feel um, so happy, so very happy. I've got the love of Jesus in my heart. Like sometimes it's nice when somebody notices that life is not always happy, so very happy, right? But rather that sometimes life is maddening and confusing, and that like the problem of evil and suffering in this world, like it is just that. Like it is a problem, and it's it's a big one. In a lot of ways, I think that Ecclesiastes is the most unconventional book in the Bible. And and so I think for some of us whose faith maybe seems a little unconventional, it's nice to know Ecclesiastes is in there. Right? Like, it's nice to know that they let the teacher speak. But this morning, we're going to take a close look at, at the perspective, not of the teacher anymore, but of the guy who let the teacher speak, the author. Remember, the author introduces us to the teacher. The author... The author clearly wants to create space for these questions to be heard. He, He doesn't want us to dismiss difficult things. He doesn't want us to pretend like they're not in there. The author says, listen to the teacher. But then he adds a couple of his own thoughts. Specifically, he adds one warning, two commands, and a promise. So first is the warning. It's verse 12. Be warned, my son of anything in addition to the teacher's teaching. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Don't add anything to the teacher's teaching. I I think that this is just one more way that the author is kind of affirming the teacher's teaching, that it can stand on its own, that that it's good, that it's okay, that there's space for these kinds of questions. But then he brings up the books with no end, and, and the study that wearies the body. And this, it seems to me, to be saying something else. And I think what he's saying is basically this. I think he's saying, don't get stuck in your head. So if you take them together, I think what the author is saying is, think deeply about life. Listen to people like the teacher. But at some point, also take a breath. And move on. Like I've met with a lot of you to talk about like questions that you have about the faith. Or like doubts that you have or issues you have with the Bible. And I have never sensed, I've never sensed that any of you were bringing up these questions just to be annoying or difficult. Um, In my experience, the questions that people ask in this church are very sincere. Um, But I've also seen a lot of you just like feel tortured by these questions. Like, you can't get them out of your head, you're overwhelmed by them. And I wonder if the author's warning here is basically this. Like, some questions in this life just do not have lockdown answers. It's, it's still faith. Uh, they don't have airtight answers. And, and that doesn't mean they don't have answers. They just might not be super satisfying answers all the time. And, and the author seems to think that it is okay sometimes to ask the question. To find unanswer, maybe not the answer, but unanswer, and then give it a rest for a while. I mean, I've seen this with some of you, right, where the questions overwhelm you and, and you feel like you've got to dig deeper and deeper, and, and usually I think I tell you to go for it, you know go ahead and dig. Um, but I think what the author is saying here is't is don't, don't get lost. Don't do so much thinking, so much questioning, so much of this study and making books. Don't get so lost in your head that you forget to also just live your life. I mean, in a way, he's kind of borrowing a point that the the teacher had been trying to make in these previous 12 chapters, right? This idea of carpe diem, seize the day, live your life, appreciate the day that you've got in front of you. Don't fret every day, live. So that's the warning. I think he's saying, don't leave your brain at the door, when you come to church. Don't, don't leave your doubts or questions in the parking lot. Take them with you. But don't like get lost in your head either. That's, that's the warning. And then the commands. What he calls the conclusion of the matter. The whole duty of human beings. It's quite an introduction. Fear God and keep his commandments. Now I'm guessing that some of you read that and you're a little disappointed. Right? Like, are you sure there's not something else? The, the teacher has just like, led us to the edge of nihilism and hedonism. Uh, this has been basically the most unconventional book in the Bible. And that's what you're giving me at the end. Fear God. Keep his commandments. It, it is, I mean, to be honest, it is basically the most conventional answer the Bible gives to any question. It's, it's in basically every book of the Bible. So you're telling me that after all that like wrestling and struggling and honest questioning, I'm just supposed to do the same old thing. I've been thinking about that this week. Is, is, the, is the author's answer too easy? Like, How does such a conventional conclusion get attached to such a, an unconventional book? Like, did some author or some editor come along and like he read Ecclesiastes? And he's like, What is this book doing in here? Right. And and he gets to like verse eight. Like, maybe that's where the ending was, right? And he's like, people aren't gonna stand for that. You can't end a book on like meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, right? How about this? Fear God and keep his commands. Whew. Right? You just imagine like the editor, just, whoa, oh, I feel so much better now, right? Is this ending a mismatch? Is it too easy? Is it too conventional? As I thought about it this week, it occurred to me that to fear God and to keep his commandments, I think that's really only a, a conventional thing to a person who's not trying it. Um, I mean, think about this, right? When, when you fear God, the, the way the Bible means, right? When you have this, like, awe and deep respect for God, when you fear God, I think part of what you realize is that all the other stuff that typically frightens you, isn't as scary anymore. Like Jesus has this line in Matthew 10. So he's talking about, he's like going to send his disciples out basically to be missionaries, to go like represent him in the world. And he gives them this like really honest preparation speech. He's like, listen, uh, you guys are going to go out there. People are going to hate you. Uh, They're going to threaten you. They're going to beat you. They're going to throw you in prison. You're going to stand before judges. He says, basically, like, if you're going to live for me out in the world, like, it's risky. Uh, If you're going to call me king, other kings are not going to appreciate that very much, right? But then Jesus says this in Matthew 10. He says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both in hell. I think if you, if you really get what it means to fear God, like this deep sense of, of awe and respect, you realize that there's nothing conventional about it. To fear God means you are able to live with a kind of abandon and trust, right? That like whatever comes in this life, Jesus says, even if they can kill your body, even if they can kill your body, you answer to a higher authority because you answer to the highest authority. I think this is one of the craziest truths of the Christian faith, that, that the person who fears God ends up living a, a fearless kind of life. I mean, I, I've shared with you guys about my friends in Honduras, uh, these, these Christians who are working to like end corruption in the police. They, they've like been a part of releasing like thousands of corrupt police officers. And surprise, corrupt police officers don't like this very much. Right? And like neither do the drug cartels, right? And so these friends are like their pastors and their Sunday school teachers, and they drive around with security details and like armored cars and they get routine death threats. But they just they persist in pursuing justice because they are Christians, right? And and, and they know that even if the cartels can kill their bodies, right, they answer to a higher authority. Right? Because they answer to the highest authority. Right, I think these hundred fears that that grip us in this life—all these different things—like they loosen their hold on us when we understand what it means to fear God. And I think it's the same way with these commandments. Um, I don't think there's anything conventional about that either. Sometimes we read the Ten Commandments in church, and it's all very orderly, and 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 maybe you think it seems kind of boring. Um, but Jesus summarizes the commandments as uh, love God and love your neighbor. Right? Well, do you know what is, like, the most sung about and poetry about and writing about? What is the most, like, incredible force in the universe? Do you know what has inspired, like, most of history's, like, most selfless, sacrificial, extraordinary gestures? It's love, Right? Love has done that. I mean, if you are motivated by love, you will risk anything. I mean, you're living anything but a conventional life. People who love take risks. Right? People who love live extraordinary lives. I think the author of Ecclesiastes is at the end here. I think he is giving anything but a conventional answer. I think he's saying, listen, is this world complicated? and hard, and confusing, and not as easy as Proverbs led you to believe. Yes. But then he says, listen, the teacher told you to carpe diem. The, the teacher told you, in the face of all this confusion, you should seize the day, live for the moment. But the author says, if you really want to seize the day, there is no more extraordinary, fearless way to live your life than to fear God and keep His command." The gospel invitation is an invitation to live with this kind of selfless abandon. And then he ends with a promise. This is our last point. It's verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. In other words... Yeah, there's weird stuff that goes on out there, right? There's, there's bad guys who get away with bad things. And there's, there's good guys who, who get punished for doing good things. But this is the promise that the author wants to leave us with. This is the promise that he holds on to. That God will get it right in the end. That's what he's saying, right? right like in this life, it's really hard to parse these things out. I mean, that's been the point of Ecclesiastes. It, I mean, down answers, airtight answers are hard to come by in this life. We live by faith. But the author says he has put his faith in the one who he believes really can sort it all out. Right? In this life, things are blurry and confusing sometimes. But he says, put your trust in the one for whom good and evil are crystal clear. Who can see the heart of things. Put your trust in God, and He will make sure it will all get sorted out in the end. All right, let's pray together. Lord God, Heavenly Father, as we uh, walk through this life where sometimes the answers to our questions are not easy to find, um, and where the answers we are given do not satisfy the, the depth of the question we're asking, Uh, Lord, as we live in this life by faith and not by sight, um, we pray that we could live extraordinary lives anyway, Uh, that you would give us the courage and the strength and the resolve and the passion to live lives of loving you and our neighbor, sacrificially, selflessly. Uh, We pray, Lord, that because of our healthy fear of you, the the other fears in this life would lose their power over us. And Lord, we pray that you would give us hope that in the end, you will get it right. And Lord, we pray that that day would come quickly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I invite you to rise in body or in spirit, and we're going to sing in response.